everybody. How you doing? Nice. I hope you're as excited, happy to be in the house as I am today. It's a good day. Anytime we get to gather like this, it's a good day. I'm believing for a good 2019. Anybody else? Come on. Anybody else believing for a good year ahead of you? Awesome. We're going to jump into God's Word this morning. If you have your Bible, would you meet me in Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. And the message I want to bring to you today is entitled, To Be Continued. To Be Continued. That doesn't mean we're finished right now and we'll pick it up next week. It means that the title of the message is to be continued. If you're taking notes this morning, let me just give you a little subheading that you can write down. I think a good subheading or subtitle for this message would be Back to Basics. If you want to write that down as well if you're taking notes today. You know, this is kind of an interesting Sunday because this is one of those Sundays in the church calendar where it kind of falls in between other things. I hope that you were here last weekend for our candlelight services. Man, last weekend when we celebrated Christmas here with our candlelight services, it was seriously amazing. And I hope that you were here to be a part of that last week. Like Pastor Nick said, we've had, yeah, like Pastor Nick said, over the last two Sundays, we've seen six, over 60 people give their lives to Jesus, and that's why we do this. That's what it's all about, and you guys play such a big, big part in that. But last weekend was awesome, and if you missed out on our candlelight services, you missed out because it was amazing. It really was, and I would encourage you to make your plans to be a part of that when the end of the year rolls around again. But then, of course, next week we'll roll into a new year. We'll start celebrating a new year in just a couple of days. Pastor's going to lead us into a new series next week called Realignment. And we're going to be talking about how it is that we can kind of get our spiritual bearings, how it is that we can align our lives in the year ahead with God's word and see his best in our lives. I encourage you, I highly encourage you to be here for that next Sunday because I believe that you'll be blessed and God will bring some direction into your life. But today is one of those in-between days, and it's like, what do you talk about on a day like this? I know that this is something that a lot of pastors and preachers ask themselves. What do you talk about? Because usually we'll look at the season that we're in, the season that's ahead, to try to gain some guidance and say, God, what are you speaking to us right now? This is also the time of year where many of us are looking at the new year, and we're making New Year's resolutions. We're thinking about the things we want to do differently next year, the things that we want to maybe continue to do the same next year. But no matter where you are, this is a time where we walk away from the old and we step into the new. And today I'm not going to preach to you about New Year's resolutions because quite frankly, I don't really believe in them that much. Um, in fact, I'll be the first one to say that I haven't really kept many of the resolutions that I've made over the last few years. Um, I will give you a tip about New Year's resolutions, though, just some friendly advice. Um, the best thing to do if you have some New Year's resolutions that you're wanting to make, don't tell anyone about them. That way, if you don't keep them, nobody ever knew the difference, okay? So just some friendly advice for the year ahead. But I was thinking about resolutions a little bit, and like I said, we're not going to talk specifically about that today, but I was doing a little bit of research online, and there are all kinds of websites and um, news sites that give you information about New Year's resolutions that people make, commonly made New Year's resolutions, and so I thought I would read some of those to you this morning. I was reading this um, pop culture media site that's called Goliath, and they were talking about a survey they did for the top 10 uh, New Year's resolutions that were made a year ago at the end of 2017. These were the top 10, okay? Top 10 New Year's resolutions. Number one, exercise more. I'm not asking you to raise your hand if this is your New Year's resolution. I'm just saying these were the top 10 resolutions. Number two, quit smoking. I think that's a good thing to quit doing. We have plenty of research to tell us so. Number three, learn a new skill, a profession, or a hobby. Learn a new skill of some kind. Number four, drink less alcohol. Number five, stop wasteful spending. Number six, eat healthier. That kind of goes hand in hand with number one for exercising more. Number seven, many people say that they want to travel more. Number eight, 
People say they want to volunteer somewhere. Number nine, and this is the one that I think every year is going to begin to crawl up to the top of this list, okay? Number nine, spend less time on social media. Now, this might be a word from the Lord for some of you. This might be a good resolution for you to make in 2019. Spend less time on social media. It might do you a lot of good to stay off the phone a little bit. Number 10, finally, the most popular New Year's resolutions. Number 10, improve a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a romantic relationship, to improve those relationships. Now, you might be already making a list of resolutions, and that's good. I hope you're setting some goals for the year ahead. But like I said, personally, I don't put a lot of stock in New Year's resolutions because traditionally, I haven't been very good at keeping them. But one of the things that I have learned is that spiritually, if I will set some goals spiritually to align my life with God's word and with God's truths, it's interesting how many of those kinds of things start to fall into place. When I put God first, when I make his priorities my priorities, when his priorities move up to the top of my priority list, it's interesting how many of those kinds of tangible, everyday things begin to fall right into place. Now, talking about New Year's resolutions, here's another interesting thing. There was a 2017 study that was done by Business Insider Magazine that found that 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by February. People are like, this is hard. Forming this new habit, stopping that old habit, this is hard. And they get to February and they're like, I don't even want to mess with it anymore. I'm done. I'm just going to keep doing what I was doing. And then this is another interesting, this is a survey from 2013, so this is five years ago. But a 2013 study by Forbes found that just 8% of people actually keep their New Year's resolutions to the end of the year. And what's interesting about that study was it wasn't a focus on the 92% who don't. It was actually a focus on the 8% of people that do. What do they do to keep those resolutions? Well, I don't want to talk to you again about these tangible everyday resolutions, but I do want to talk to you about some tangible everyday spiritual things that we can do in our lives to grow closer to God and have a more successful walk with God. I don't know about you, but I want to grow in my walk with God. Is anybody with me this morning? I want to grow closer to God. I want to live a life that's more pleasing to God. And by the time I get to the end of next year, I want God to look at my life and say, good job, well done, you've made progress. I want to be able to look back and see that I've made progress in my walk with God. Now I ask you to turn this morning to Acts chapter 2. And that's because we're going to read in just a couple of minutes from a very small passage of Scripture in Acts 2 that will help us find a formula that we see in the early church. But I want to give some context this morning. Because I think a lot of times we lose perspective and we lose context of what was going on in the early church with the early church believers. In Acts chapter 2, a very interesting thing happens. We see that Jesus has ascended to God. He's in heaven. And he says, I'm going to send the helper. He makes this promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come. That's the promise that's made. And it's, Jesus even said, it's good that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come and be with you always. So there's 120 people that are waiting, praying, expecting God to send the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 2, we see the descending of the Holy Spirit. It comes in the form of a mighty rushing wind. There are signs that follow. We see these flaming tongues, people speaking in languages that aren't their own, but those languages are understood by other people because they hear them speaking their language. And then there's always people over here who are doubting and questioning what's going on. But in that very moment, Peter steps up and recognizes this is the descending, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about. And he begins to preach to these people who are seeing it happen with their own eyes. He says, this is what Jesus promised. This is what the prophet Joel promised in the Old Testament that we would experience later on. 
And then when he gives this message about Jesus and tells them the truth about the sacrifice that Jesus made, the scripture tells us that in that very day, 3,000 people made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of their life. So we have to understand that in this picture, there's 120 believers who are believing, praying, expecting the Holy Spirit to come. They don't yet know what it's going to look like. They just know that it's going to happen. And then suddenly when it comes, 3,000 other people say, I want in on that. I want to make Jesus my Savior and the Lord of my life. And so one day, it's as if the church is basically in its infancy. You can hardly even tell that it exists. But a few hours later, there's well over 3,000 people that have become the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what's so cool about this. 2,000 years later, we're gathered here today, the exact same thing that we see in Acts chapter 2. We are, 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus Christ. It's so cool that we can still be united. But one of the things that I'm getting at today and that I really want to talk to you about is that the early church, they had a totally different life than what you and I are accustomed to. When we talk about these early church believers, we have to understand that their lives and what church was to them was something completely different than what we would think of. The early church did not have the scriptures. They did not have the New Testament canon to refer to. They did not have the gospels to look at the words of Jesus. If they wanted to grow, they had to look simply to the people who had been with Jesus. And that's an interesting thing because if they wanted to grow in their, their walk with God, in their Christianity, if you will, they had to find somebody who had been with Jesus because there wasn't anybody who had yet written down what it meant to follow Jesus. So there was the simple formula of things that they did to grow in their walk with God. And I, I want to just point this out to you this morning. We are incredibly blessed in 21st century America. We have the word of God. We have the writings of Jesus' words in his life, his ascension into heaven. And it was totally different for the early church. We are incredibly blessed with everything that we have. But one of the things that I see in scripture is that they had a very basic formula that they adopted their lives to that helped them grow in their walk with God. I want to talk to you about that this morning because I believe that even if we in 21st century America will go back to these four very basic things that we see in Scripture, even now, going into 2019, we can still grow in our walk with God and grow closer to Him. So let me read to you this morning for an Acts chapter 2, okay? It says in Acts 2, verse 41. Again, then those who gladly received His word, that's talking about Peter's message about Jesus, they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them, to the kingdom of God or to the church. And then it says in verse 42, and they continued, everybody say continued. And they continued steadfastly. Other translations say they devoted themselves. They continued steadfastly in four things. Number one, the apostles' doctrine. Number two, and fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, they devoted themselves in prayers, the, the language there actually makes it uh, plural. There's more than one kind of prayer. They devoted themselves to prayers. Now, I want to talk about these four things this morning because I think it's important that even though the, the early church was doing this in a very newfound way, these basic formulaic principles are things that if we still put into practice in our life, we'll still find success in our walk with God. So let's talk about the first thing of those four things that they devoted themselves to, that they continued in, steadfastly. The first thing is they continued in the apostles' doctrine. That word doctrine really means teaching. So it means they devoted themselves and continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. 
Now, like I said, the early church believers did not have the New Testament canon of Scripture that they could refer to. If they wanted to know what it meant to be a Christian, what is a Christian? A follower of Jesus. If they wanted to find out how they could walk like Jesus and follow Jesus, they couldn't open up the Gospels and look at it and find the words of Jesus. Instead, they had to go to the people who walked with Jesus themselves. This is kind of like if you were to learn a trade of some kind or a profession of some kind. If you want to learn how to be good in that trade, you need to go to somebody who knows how to do it very, very well. Before you can become a master of that, you're an apprentice. And then you become a journeyman where you get that experience. But before you can really master that trade, you have to sit near somebody who knows what they're doing. And I cannot under, understate or underestimate to you exactly how influential the original 12 disciples were at this time in the early church. In fact, we could actually call it the 11 because we know one of those 12 took his own life around the time that Jesus went to the cross. That was Judas. He was later replaced by a guy named Matthias who saw Jesus up close firsthand. But these were people that walked and talked with Jesus, and the experience that they had was so amazing because they saw it firsthand. They saw it up close. They knew Jesus. They walked with him. They talked with him. They saw how he lived. So therefore, when it came to these early church Christians learning how to walk like Jesus, they had to go and hang out with people who did it themselves. And I want to tell you something this morning because 2,000 years, that principle has not changed. We here today, if you want to learn how to walk with God, you know what you need to do? You need to get around some people who have walked with God. If you're here this morning and you've been walking with God for a long time, you've been a part of you know, this church or the church for some time, I guarantee you that if you are mature in your walk with God, it's because you grew in your personal relationship with God, but you also grew in the presence of other people who had been doing it longer than you had. There's something to be said about this that was true then that has not changed even today. We have to understand that God wants to place us and position us in relationships with people who have been doing this longer than we have. But he also wants us to learn from the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' teaching. Now, just to emphasize exactly how new this was to these early church believers, I want to read something to you. When I study for a message like this, I like to go back and read some um, expositional commentaries or something like that, but there was a 19th century preacher. He was from England. His name was uh, Alexander McLaren, and he wrote Bible expositions and commentaries, and he wrote these really amazing words about the early church in the New Testament. Listen to this. This is talking about how new this way of following Jesus really was. He says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, that's a description of different kinds of people that came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, along with Jews gathered from every corner of the Roman world. They had come up to Jerusalem, and the bulk of them knew no more about Christ and about Christianity than what they picked up out of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. But that was enough to change their hearts and their wills and to lead them to an authentic, real faith. And though the contents of their faith were very incomplete, they didn't have it all figured out, even though the contents of their faith were very incomplete, the power of their faith was great. And he writes on, and, and listen to these interesting words, believing they were eager for more light to be poured into their half-seeing eyes. They had no gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't have access to those writings, they probably hadn't even been written yet. They had no Gospels. They had no written record. They had no means of learning anything about the faith which they were now professing except listening to one or another of the original 11 disciples. 
So those original 11 disciples, when they followed Jesus, they weren't just learning how to follow Jesus for themselves. They were learning how to follow Jesus so that they could teach others how to follow Jesus also. And by the time the early church was birthed and Jesus had ascended into heaven, their influence could not be overstated. They were incredibly influential. And all of these people who now called themselves Christians, they came and gathered around those early church apostles because they wanted to know more than anything else. This was like the bread for eating, bread for food for them. They hung on the words of the early apostles because the apostles were the only ones who had spent time with Jesus. Now, I say all that to you this morning, but let's just break this down a little bit and talk a little bit about how it is that we apply this to our everyday lives. It's interesting how the early church clung to the words and the doctrines and the teachings of the apostles, those who had been with Jesus, and began to silence the voices of everybody else on the outside. Now, I think we all need to have community. We should all have community with people outside of the church. But I want to ask you this question this morning. What voices do you listen to in your life? What voices are you allowing into your life that might be taking your life off course or down a path that God does not want you to travel down? What voices are you letting into your life? Now, I know for a lot of us, maybe we're really mature in our walk with God and we're not listening to voices that would lead us astray. But can I just tell you something? Even in the church world, even within Christianity, man, there's so many voices out there. There are so many books being written. There are so many podcasts. There are so many YouTubers and people talking about this theology and this doctrine and this way of looking at Scripture. Can I just encourage you for just a moment to be really careful about how many voices you allow into your life? Because there are a lot of voices that can take you down a wrong path that God never intended you to walk down. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants to bring, word, he wants to bring uh, messages from messengers that who he has gifted and placed into the body to help bring encouragement, to bring direction, and sometimes even correction into our lives. He does want to do that. But it's really interesting to me because I'm at this place in my life where I have students. We have students here in our youth group. I know whether it's Pastor Nick, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Corey, or myself, we have students and people all the time that will come up and say, what do you think about this book? What do you think about that book? What do you think about this pastor, teacher, preacher, person with the podcast, YouTuber? And there's all these different voices. And one of the things i found is that there are a lot of people who are confused because there are so many different voices telling them to go in so many different directions. What's interesting about the early church is that there were no other voices to tell them to go any other direction except for those who had walked with Jesus. And when I ask you that question, who are you listening to? I find myself at this place when I look at 2019 and I look at the year ahead of me, one of the goals that I'm setting for myself is I'm going to go back to the Gospels. Because if I want to find direction for my life, there are two places to find it. The words of Jesus and the teachings of those who walked with him. And let me say it to you like this. Before I need to know what anybody, any other, excuse me, before I need to hear what any other voice is saying, I need to know what Jesus said first. If you're looking for direction in your life, you might have some really great friends, but if those friends don't know the word of God, don't seek direction from them. Be a friend to them, bring some light into the darkness that they might be walking in, and you know what, love on them and show them the love of Jesus, but don't take life direction from them. I know that sounds a little bit cruel, but here's the thing. God has given us his word so that we might follow the precepts and the path that he has for us. Does that make sense to everybody? We've got to be careful which voices we're listening to. Can I just also say this? I believe that it was a blessing to the early church that they didn't have so many voices pointing them in so many different directions because they probably had a whole lot less confusion than we have today. 
If you're confused about a doctrine, about a theology, about something from Scripture, don't go looking to people on the outside. Go back to the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say, and what did the people who followed him say as well? That's where we will find true direction for our lives. Amen? Amen. But with that said, let's move on. Let's go to the second thing, okay? The second thing that they devoted themselves to, that they continued steadfastly in, number two, in fellowship. In fellowship. Now, we've talked about fellowship a lot here in our church. We've actually devoted some messages on Sundays to talk specifically about fellowship. Fellowship in the New Testament, this Greek word, it's the word koinonia or koinonia, however you might prefer to pronounce it. But the definition of this word fellowship simply is community, and I like this, joint participation. It means it's not just one person who's doing the participating, it's people interacting with one another. The sharing which one has with another in anything that they might offer. Now, I think that the New Testament early church had a much better idea of what fellowship was compared to what we sometimes call fellowship. Fellowship was something that we all participated in together. Fellowship was this idea that you have something to offer me and I have something to offer you. If there's a need that you have in my life, the supply that I might have is available to you. If there's a need that I have in my life, the supply that you have is available to me. We share in joint participation. And that's not just in tangible, common, everyday things. It also means in spiritual things. It means that when the early church gathered as each one of them individually grew in Christ and in their relationship with God, they would receive something from God that they could then impart to somebody else. No, no, no. This is what Jesus meant when he told that to the apostles. If you walk in this way, this is what you'll see the product being in your life. And it became revelation where they shared in the things that each other needed. They participated in one another's lives and they even contributed to the greater good of the community. Here's the thing about fellowship. Sadly, a lot of us in 21st century America, like in the churched world here in America, when we talk about fellowship, we could literally define our fellowship as saying hi to five people after service before we go to lunch. It's like, so what did you do after service today? Well, bless God, I just walked around and had some fellowship. But what did that look like? I said hi to my five friends at church, and then I was out the door because I was hungry. You know, like we will sometimes define fellowship that way. Like if I have a two-minute conversation with you, brother, we're having fellowship right here. Can I just tell you something? If that is our limited view of fellowship, we've really missed the point of what true fellowship really is. Fellowship is where I have something for you, you have something for me, I'm available to you, you're available to me, and we have joint participation in one another's lives. And this idea of fellowship extends so much further than all of that. Now, here's one thing I want to also explain to you. When we talk about the early church here in Acts chapter 2, this word church really hasn't even been used that many times until we get to this passage of scripture. And the word church in the original writings is the Greek word ekklesia. We've taught about this in church as well. That word ekklesia means that the church, we as the church of Jesus Christ, we are the called out ones. Called out of what? We're called out of darkness and we're called into light. When we were lost in our sin, before we were unsaved, before we met Jesus, we were lost in our sin. We had not experienced forgiveness and redemption. But when we encountered Jesus and recognized that he paid for our sin at the cross, we accepted him into our life. We made him our Lord and our Savior. We stepped out of that darkness and into the light. We are now the called out ones. We collectively, not just me, not just you, but we collectively have been called out of that darkness and now walk together in this new light. And what's so interesting about this is I think that we have to clearly understand that in the early church, these people just had everything about their life change. They didn't have these church traditions to fall back on because the church had just been born. 
They didn't have these things that had been handed down to them traditionally and generationally that they could follow in because the church had just been born. Instead, they clung to one another because they recognized, listen, I have found newness of life. I've been called out of that darkness, and I'm now walking in this light. And not only am I doing that, but so are you. So guess what? Let's do it together. Let's grow together. Let's encourage each other together. Let's spend time together. Let's share each other's lives. And that's literally what fellowship looked like in those days. And it's interesting because I think a lot of us don't see fellowship that way at all. We see it as spending a little bit of time having a conversation with someone who also calls themselves a Christian. But in those days, man, fellowship was being vulnerable. And not only that, but when I think about this idea of fellowship, I think a lot of us miss it because we kind of isolate ourselves. And I want to hear, I want to just kind of explain it to you like this. I'm, I'm a big like podcast guy, okay? I'm a big listener. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a better listener learner than I am a reader learner. I'm growing in my reading learning, but I listen to a ton of podcasts. And the other day I was listening to an interview, a podcast interview with two leaders of different faiths, okay? This one gentleman, his name is Bishop Robert Barron, and he's a Catholic bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And this other guy that was in this interview, he's a Jewish rabbi. His name is David Wolpe. And he's a senior rabbi of Sinai Temple in L.A. also. And so these two different gentlemen of different faiths were having this interview. They were both being interviewed. And the person who was doing the interview was an atheist. He doesn't believe in God whatsoever. And he asks them this question. He says, what are the problems or the challenges that you encounter as leaders in your church or in your synagogue? As a leader in there, when people come to you bringing challenges and things that they're dealing with, what are the most common things and problems that you hear about? And they both said, number one, everybody is looking for the meaning of life. They're trying to find meaning within their life. But the second thing that they they both said hand in hand, I mean, they both named the top two things that they deal with all the time. They both said, more now today than ever, we see people who are dealing with loneliness. People are dealing with loneliness. And remember where they're talking talking from. They're talking about within the church or the synagogue, right? These are people of faith and who are supposed to be finding community within those communities of faith so that they don't feel lonely. And as they were talking about loneliness being this epidemic within a synagogue or within a church, they both said something that was very, very interesting. They said, isn't it ironic that today in this day and age, people would find themselves lonely when we pride ourselves on how easy it is to get connected to one another? We look at digital platforms, we look at social media, we look at all these other ways that we can quote-unquote connect and interact with one another, yet so many people feel lonely. And the reason why is because a lot of the things that we call connection and connectivity are not connectivity or connection whatsoever. In fact, it's simply convenience that allows us to sit back in the comfort of our own home and pretend that we're building real relationships with other people. Isn't that sad? That convenience has brought us to that place. That convenience would be the thing that makes me feel lonely. What's really interesting about that is that when I think about this idea of fellowship, the early church believers, they clung to one another because it was life and death to them. They're like, I've found newness of life when I stepped out of my sinful life. I found Jesus. Now I'm standing in the light, and I don't want to walk back into the darkness. Instead, I want to be surrounded by all of you so that together we can walk in the light, and I don't have to do this on my own. Can I tell you something about fellowship? Fellowship, most of the time, is very inconvenient. Opening up your world to other people and letting them in can be very inconvenient. Creating a place in your schedule to let someone get together with you so that you can hash out the things of life and encourage each other is very inconvenient. 
It's interesting, one of the things that we see in connect groups all the time is that we start getting into these conversations where people are encouraging one another and talking about real life things that we all walk through. And you know, scripture talks about how iron sharpens iron. You know what happens when iron comes into contact with iron? Sparks fly. And when we begin to open up to one another and things get a little bit sparky and we start like kind of having a little bit of friction there, we tend to back up and say, well, I don't need this. This is really, really inconvenient. But one of the ways that the early church grew in their relationship with God and with each other was by being vulnerable and doing some things that quite often were very inconvenient. And they didn't walk away lonely. In fact, they found community and God added to their number and they, had, they found that they were a part of this amazing thing that was so much bigger than themselves. Now, I'm just going to share from my heart for a moment. I don't want anybody to like be offended by this when I say this because I'm not pointing anybody out or anything, but... One of the most heartbreaking and sad things that we encounter as pastors is when we meet people in this church or from any other church that say, I just had a hard time getting connected in that church. That's, that, that's tough. Because as a pastor, we want to have as much of a connective church as we can. We want to give as people as many outlets as possible to get connected. But sometimes what we'll find is that we begin to have a deeper conversation about, okay, well, what did you do to try to get connected? And they're like, well, you know, I came to church on Sunday a few times. Okay, well, how often do you come? I mean, like, once every three or four weeks, you know? Well, of course you didn't find connection. You're not here that much. And I know that a lot of you, that's going to zing a little bit. Sorry. But here's the thing. We'll talk to other people that are like, we got like 30 different connect groups happening in our church. And that's not to say that we're a perfect church or that we have all bases covered because we're certainly always growing in that. But there's a lot of people that it's like, well, I would love to get connected, but have you been to a connect group? Well, no, I mean, my work schedule, and I don't really want to go out when I get home from work, or we have to figure out this plan or that plan, and it's just a little bit inconvenient. Right, because relationships are inconvenient. Have you ever noticed that your best friends are willing to call you in the middle of the night when something goes wrong? Why? Because they're your closest friends. Ain't nothing convenient about getting a call in the middle of the night saying, I've hit a crisis. But the reason they call you is because you've built rapport and relationship. And a lot of people will walk through life lonely because they never become vulnerable and they only stick to what is convenient when God is calling us to go so much further and be in relationship and fellowship with other believers. And a lot of us, if we refuse to do that and do something that's a little bit inconvenient, you know what ends up happening? We end up drifting back off into the darkness when God has called us out of the darkness and into light. And if you look at your life and say, I'm struggling because I got one foot in the dark and I got one foot in the light, can I encourage you? Step out of the dark crowd you're running with and step into the light with some people who want to run in the same direction. Be in fellowship with one another. Be in fellowship with God's people. All right, that was a little straightforward. It's not going to be as harsh from here on out, I promise, all right? Now, number three and number four in the rest of this, pack, in the rest of this uh, passage right here, we're going to shift these around, okay? Because when you came in today, you should have received the elements of communion. And at the end of service, we're going to partake of communion together. So the third one is the breaking of bread. We're going to leave that for last, and we're going to move to number four. It says that the, that the early church devoted themselves steadfastly to prayer or prayers. Let's talk about prayer for just a moment. You know, when I think about this idea of prayer, the vast majority of people who would have given their life to Jesus in the early church would have come from a Jewish background. And their Jewish traditions would have really encouraged them to be a part of systematic traditional prayers where they would repeat the same prayer day in and day out or week after week, month after month, year after year. And that's not a bad thing. That was a part of their custom. But what's interesting is that when you look at the early church and you actually look at the disciples' life, when the disciples, the original 12, when they started walking with Jesus, one of the things that blew them away was that Jesus had this open dialogue with God. 
And they listened to the way that he prayed, and they said to themselves, this guy has a really close relationship with God, and we can tell because of the way that he talks to God. And in Matthew chapter 6, we actually see the, the disciples, they approach Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the way that you pray to the Father is unbelievable. It's not systematic. It's not repetitive. It's not this ritual. It's not something that you do for the sake of religion. It's something that you do out of relationship. And they say, we want to learn how to pray to the Father the same way that you do because it shows how close you are with the Father. Now let's read real quick from Matthew chapter 6. This is what it says in verse 9. I think most of us know this by heart. Jesus said these words. He says, do this in this manner. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. A lot of us know that. Maybe you grew up in a different tradition, a more orthodox tradition, where that was recited on a weekly basis on a Sunday. Maybe you grew up in a church like this, like I did, where it was taught to us, you know, really in Sunday school and even by my own parents. And we recited that in our home. I've known that my whole life. But one of the things I've grown to understand is I don't really think it was the will of God or, will, or Jesus' will that we would just simply repeat that verbatim. I think it was the will of God that Jesus, when he gave us that prayer, we, we had a shell. We had an outline of how it is that we should approach the Father and how it is that we could talk to God. For a lot of us, prayer is a ritual or it's something that we don't do at all. For a lot of us, prayer seems like we're talking to the wall because when we talk, we hear our voice, but we don't hear another voice speaking back to us. And I don't want to say that to put anybody down because I'll kind of put myself at the front of the line and tell you that of all these areas that I'm going to talk about this morning, this is the one that I find myself needing to grow in the most. I can always grow in my prayer life. But what would happen if we approached the Father the same way that Jesus did? Don't you think our relationship with God would go to a whole new level? Listen to this. What if we approach God like this? When Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you are great. You are my Savior. You're my creator. You're the one who knows me better than anybody else. And in this time and in the day that's in front of me, I want to give you my life because you are second to none. You're at the top of my list. You are my priority. And I believe that you would save me, you have delivered me, and you have set me apart. And for that, I honor you, I praise you, and I give you my life today. I worship you, and I invite you to come in. What if we started every day of our life that way? He goes on and says, thy kingdom come. And thy will be done. What would happen if we said, God, let today not be about my kingdom. Let it be about yours. Let your kingdom come in my life. Let my desires, let my agenda be put aside so that your agenda can be fulfilled in my life. On earth as it is in heaven. God, I need some of your heaven to come down and invade my earth today because I got stuff. I have challenges. I have chaos. I have things that I'm walking through. And what I need is for a little bit of heaven to invade my earth today. God, I need that today. He went on and he said, give us this day our daily bread. God, I have needs. My family has needs. There are things that I need this day. And I don't want to look to my own strength. I don't want to look to my own resources. I don't want to look to my own supply. I want to look to you and say, God, give me everything I need today because you're my source. You're my provider. And because every good and perfect gift comes from you. Supply my needs according to your riches and glory. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, forgive me if there's any sin in my life, if there's anything that I have done to offend you, to hurt you, to hurt the heart of God that might separate me from you in sin. I repent of that today. I ask for your forgiveness. And not only that, but I look at people who might have hurt me, who might have hurt my feelings, who might have wronged me or offended me. I forgive them today before you because remember Jesus said that it's hard to ask for God's forgiveness if we haven't first forgiven others. And the place that we do it is in prayer. 
Then he goes on and says, do not lead us into temptation. God, guide my steps, direct my path today, that the evil one would stay far from me. Deliver me from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. This day is not about my kingdom. This day is not about my power. It's not about my glory. It's all about yours. So I give it to you today, God. Go before me. Lead me. Make a way in my life. Be pleased with my life. Be near to me today in Jesus' name. Amen. What would happen if every day of our life prayer was that simple? Here's the thing. That took about three minutes to do what I just said. But yet for a lot of us, it's so difficult to do that. But what we miss out on is the reality that if we will set the table in prayer, it's amazing what God will begin to put on the table of our life throughout the course of the day. What does your prayer life look like? Because God wants us to be in contact and in communication with him. Again, what does your prayer life look like? Are you consistent with it? One of the things that I see when I look at this passage of scripture, when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. I wonder if the disciples knew that while Jesus was teaching them to pray, he was also teaching them how to teach others how to pray. Because in the early church, when they needed to learn how to pray, you know who they went to? They went to those disciples. I'm just going to say this this morning because it's been on my heart since last night when I was preparing. If you're a parent in this house, don't be afraid to teach your kids how to pray in the privacy and comfort of your own home. There ain't no better place for your kids to learn how to pray than in your house. There ain't nobody there to tell you you're doing it wrong or to mess with what you say or to be embarrassed about what might come out of your mouth. Teach your kids to pray in the privacy and the comfort of your own home. You know why? Because when you're teaching them to pray, you might not realize it, but you might actually be teaching them how to teach their kids how to pray one day. You know, I know that this is part of my calling, but I felt like since I was a kid, I was never afraid to pray in front of people. And I think the biggest reason why was because it came naturally for my parents to always pray in front of me. It was like, this is how we talk to God. I'm not putting myself on a pedestal. Like, I'm fortunate in that way that my parents raised me that way. But I'm saying to you today, if you've got small kids in your house, they might not even be that small anymore. Take every opportunity to teach your kids how to pray. Don't let them grow up feeling like it's this uncomfortable thing where there's nobody listening or they don't know what to say. Now teach them young so that as they grow, they can understand what it means to communicate and have contact with God. Do that. They might be teaching their kids how to pray in the process. And finally, the last thing that we're going to talk about today is the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. You know, it's interesting, this part where it talks about the breaking of bread, most of my life I've read that part of this verse, and I've thought that really what it meant was that they just shared common meals together. Because there's not a formal word for communion or the Lord's Supper that we see in Scripture. A lot of Bible scholars have asked the question, in this verse, when it says that they gathered and they devoted themselves steadfastly to the breaking of bread, does that mean that they just hung out together and had meals together? Because that kind of sounds like fellowship, and we already talked about that. Or were they actually partaking of the Lord's Supper in communion? A lot of people have asked that question. And as I've kind of studied it out and looked at what a lot of Bible scholars have to say about it, in my personal opinion, when it says that they broke bread, I think it means both. I think it means that they shared common meals together. But I think it also means that they partook of communion together. If you come from a Catholic background or a more Orthodox background, communion is something that you might have grown up hearing being called the Eucharist. The Greek word there is Eucharisteo. But you know what's funny about that word Eucharist is that it actually doesn't mean, it's not translated into the word communion. It literally means to give thanks. 
When I look at what the, the original believers here in the early church did, these first Christians, when I look at what they did with this whole idea of the breaking of bread, they didn't have these traditions like we have where we would come here today and when someone hands you this little cup and a wafer at the door, we say, oh, this is the tradition of the partaking of communion. That's something that we do every time we have a fifth Sunday. It's a formal thing that we do here at the bridge because that's the way Jesus said to do it. Every time there's a fifth Sunday. No, he didn't say that. He said, do it as often as you would in remembrance of him. And what we oftentimes forget is that back in the day with the original believers, when they gathered around tables, they gathered around people where they could look at each other in the eye around a table and say, we're here together because we've together have been called out of darkness and together we are now walking in marvelous light. And when we sit down to break bread and to pour the wine, I look at all of you and I'm grateful to be sitting here. But before we do anything else, I want to give honor to God because he saved me. He found me when I was lost. He saved me in the middle of my sin. He's changed my life. He brought me out of that darkness and into his light. And now my life has purpose and my eternity is secure in his hands. And when they gathered, it wasn't breaking a bread for the sake of a common meal or just going through a ritual of partaking of communion. Instead, they gathered as a community and celebrated the thing that they had in common, which we have all been saved by Jesus. When I look around this morning, you know what we have in common as the church of Jesus Christ? We have been saved by Jesus. Let me say that again. We have been saved by Jesus. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I walked in darkness, but now I walk in light. And I'm not the only one here. That's your story too. It might look a little bit different than mine, but when we hold this bread and when we hold this cup, we sometimes forget that this is not a formality. This is not religion. This is giving honor and glory to God and saying, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for me. And when the original church gathered together, they did this out of a heart and sense of gratitude. And they said, Jesus, you've saved us. So together, walking in the light, we're going to partake together of the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to do in just a minute. I want to invite all of you right now, if you would, to stand to your feet. Now, this is a holy moment. And this is something I want to do in honor and reverence and respect. But there's one thing that we need to do. If you came in a little bit later, maybe you didn't get the elements of communion. Our ushers are going to be in the aisles right now. And if you didn't get the elements of communion, would you just slip up your hand real quick? Because we want to make sure we can put those in your hand and take care of you. We do this intentionally. Because we believe that here at the bridge, we believe that communion is for believers. The Apostle Paul talked about rightfully discerning the body of Christ. That we would understand that we've been saved and redeemed. And then we are available to partake of the Lord's Supper. Before we partake of that, just hold those in your hand for just a moment. I want to say a couple very important things. There's only two things left to do this morning and we'll be done, okay? You might be here today and you feel like you walked into this place out of utter darkness. You might feel like your entire life has been defined by your failures, by your shortcomings, by your mishaps, by things that you might have done to other people or things that other people might have done to you. You might feel like all that wrongdoing is piled up so high that God could never reach down and save you from your condition. I want to tell you this morning that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus in exchange for your very worst and all the mistakes that you've ever made. And if you would give him all that junk, all that past, all those mistakes, and invite him in to be your savior and become the Lord of your life, he offers forgiveness. He offers salvation. He offers redemption. He offers purpose in this life and security in the life and eternity that is to come. But he asks us to follow him. 
Before we partake of communion, I would be wrong to not give every person in this house the opportunity to invite Jesus to come into your life. If you're here today and you feel as though you've been separated from God because of your sin or your wrongdoing, all you have to do is pray a simple prayer where you reach out to God, open your heart and say, I want in on this redemption. I want in on this salvation. I want in on this forgiveness. And he'll come in and he'll change your life. And he'll see to it that you get to spend eternity with him forever and ever if you will choose to follow him. So right now I wanna ask everybody if you would just bow your heads, close your eyes. This is a kind of a public setting, but this is a private moment between you and God, between every single person individually and God right now. Today, if you know in your heart that you need to, to give Jesus your life and invite him to come in and take over lordship, I want to tell you that he's standing at the door knocking, and now is your opportunity to answer the call. We're going to pray a prayer right out loud, and the way that we receive him is by inviting him into our lives and declaring our faith in him. So right now, as we repeat these words, mean it with everything inside of you if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus today. Would you repeat these words and say, Dear Jesus, today I thank you that you died for me. I thank you that you went to the cross on my behalf. I believe that you are the son of God and that after you died, you were raised back to life so that I could be raised too. Today I choose you. I wanna follow you. I want you to be my Lord for this day, for tomorrow, and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, every single person in the house, I want to invite you, if you would, to take those communion elements in your hand. Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples and said, this is my body, it's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. I want to say to you this morning that the body of Christ was broken so that this body of Christ could be put back together. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross that he's put my life and your life back together. And just like the early church believers, let's honor God by partaking together of the bread. And after that, scripture tells us that in the same manner, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood that's shed for you. It's the blood of a new covenant. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, because his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we have a new covenant. We have a new deal with God. We are forgiven, we are set free, and we are redeemed to live the life that he's called us to. I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful for what Jesus did at the cross for me. If you're thankful this morning, let's partake of the cup together. Now just lift your hands right there where you're at. Father, we thank you that you paid the price, that you made it all the way, that you didn't stop. Even when it was hard, you went all the way because you had us on your mind. And thank you that 2,000 years later, we can still stand here saved and redeemed and healed and delivered because of that sacrifice that you made. We accept that. We honor you. We thank you. Even if it's the last thing we do this year, God, we want you to know that you are first in our lives. We honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, real quick, we got one minute, okay? Real quick, what's gonna happen is the ushers are coming, they're gonna put, they're gonna pass down plastic containers at the end of your aisle. You can just put your empty containers into those bags. And as you're doing that, here's the last thing I wanna say. If you made a decision to follow Jesus today, this is not cliche, these are not just nice words. I believe that's the best decision that you could ever make in your entire life, making Jesus the Lord of your life. 
We would love to help you start your walk with God. We want to give you a free gift. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's a simple book that we want to put in your hand. There's two different ways that you can get it. As soon as the service is over, there'll be prayer teams right down here. You might have a need in your life. You might need someone to pray with you. Just walk up to one of these prayer teams. Let them know you made a decision to follow Jesus. They'll give you the book. We don't need anything from you, but we're happy to help if we can. We're here to pray with you if you need prayer. If you need to go quickly after service, stop by the next seven days desk. It's right in the middle of the glass doors before you exit the building. Let them know you prayed the prayer. You made a decision to follow Jesus, and they'll give that to you. We just want to help you start walking with God. Hey, can we put our hands together and welcome some new people into God's family today? Hey, we love you. Have an awesome Sunday. Happy New Year. Be safe. Have a good time. Have an awesome week. And we will see you next Sunday in church.